now go to the Word of God. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how to aunt, how to, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you once again for this privilege and opportunity we have to come here to worship you, to stand under the ministry of your word. We pray, Lord God, that you give us ears to hear, hearts to understand, minds to believe. And Lord, may you change us from the inside out that our wills would be conformed to your son. In Jesus' name, and Lord, we pray for myself as a vessel O oh Lord, that is speaking forth your word, Holy Spirit, anoint my tongue, my lips, my mouth, my heart, my mind. Take control of me and use me as a vessel of honor. Speak forth thy word with truth, conviction, and compellingness. In Christ's name, amen. Today, just two very short verses. We saw last time we're reaching the end of Colossians. These are the final exhortations of the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae. And while these verses are short, the implications are vast, and we cannot help but to see the connection of them to the previous verses. And then the previous verses in verse uh, three through uh, two through four, I should say, um, is, is is Paul asking for prayer. He's asking for prayer that God may open a door for the word, that God may open a door for the word. He's asking the church to pray for him that in his apostolic ministry, that God would present opportunities for him to proclaim the word, the logos, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That same word, logos, is the word that is used in verse 6 when it says, let your speech always be gracious. The word speech there is lagos. Let your words be gracious, seasoned with grace. And so I believe that what Paul is demonstrating here is a continuity of thought that just as Paul was called to the ministry field as an apostle, as a missionary, to plant churches and to proclaim Christ where he's never been heard among the Gentiles, God also calls each and every one of us with an individual responsibility to also proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We do not have an apostolic call. We do not have a missionary call. But we do have a personal responsibility to also speak forth the words of God. And I like the words that he uses here. He says, let your speech also be gracious and seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt. And this idea of saltiness in our speech 
is something that's important. I want to bring up that word salty because I think it has a different meaning and connotation in our modern context than it did in the first century. The word salty, if you were to look it up in the dictionary, actually means somebody who is very irritable, someone who's always angry, someone who's easily offended, and someone who's very unpleasant to be around. So I highly doubt that that would be the meaning of the word to define how we deal with other Christians or deal with unbelievers in this context. God does not want us to be angry, unpleasant, and irritable. Rather, the word salt, as it's used as an adjective and adverb in biblical times, is used to describe salt's purpose and function, and that was as a preservative agent, a preserving agent. In the ancient world, refrigeration didn't exist, and in order to preserve meats and fish, you used salt. We see residuals of that in our current society. There are certain delicacies that we enjoy, like prosciutto or or salted codfish, which some may refer to as bacalao, but both of those foods are, are preserved and they are uh, um, uh, flavored by the salt that they're... Uh, prosciutto is a ham hock that's buried under a pile of salt. Uh, codfish, bacalao, is buried under a pile of salt that dries it out. It, it removes all the moisture and preserves the meat and the fish, and then you have a tasty treat afterwards. This is the same way salt was used in the ancient world. Salt was a preserving agent. It gave... It also gave flavor to food. It was, it was rich and it, it was tasty. We use it still in the same way. Salt is used to flavor food. The Lord Jesus Christ used the word salty in the same context in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5.13, he says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. Christ is calling us as his people to live salty lives, to be preserving agents to a a world that is dying around us. The world is in decay. It's in decay in the first century. It's in decay now, and it always will be in decay. And it's God's people that are the preserving agents of a society. They're the preserving agents of the world. If it weren't for the elect, God would bring utter judgment upon the world. When God sent his angels to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, it was Abraham who pleaded, if there were but ten righteous, would you withhold judgment? Yes, if there were ten righteous, God would withhold judgment, but not even two righteous could be found in the city, and the whole city was declared under God's wrath. Lot was the only righteous man there. So for the sake of the elect, God preserves, and so the church has a function The church has a a role. Christ sets his church apart to be the preserving agent and to add flavor and to to bring life to society that's filled with darkness and ungodly and wickedness. And for the most part, this has been true in Western civilization. If it weren't for the church, the world would have been run by pagans for the last 2,000 years. God in his grace has used the church to sanctify in spite of all of its faults Western civilization has very much of a great Christian influence and is what it is today because of Christianity. But what Paul is speaking here is not so much about the larger context of saltiness, although it's part of it, is how we use our speech. Our speech should be salty as well. 
Our salty speech leads to salty lives. And ultimately, this reflects the church's corporate witness. When I talk about the church's corporate witness, it is twofold. The church's corporate witness to the unbelieving world, to the outsider, as Paul describes, is twofold. It is one, it is, it is both what we preach and teach, right? The words that we speak, the doctrines that we, we, we teach, those words must be true. They must be true to God. They must be true to the Bible. And they must be uh, um, rooted in the truth of his word, not merely results of traditions of men or not merely the opinions of men, but it's God's word. We're to be faithful in the proclamation of God's word. But it's also the outward conduct and character of the church. In other words, the lives of God's people, the speech of God's people should reflect the very things we teach. And so often the problem is, is that our corporate witness is tarnished because the church does not live up or consistently reflect in our conduct what we say. Or as the unbeliever would say, practice what you preach. Apostle Paul spoke to this very issue to the Jews in Rome when he says in Romans 2, 21 through 24, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rod temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And when the church's corporate witness is tarnished, that's exactly the result. The result is that the world will look at us and curse God. They will blaspheme Jesus. They will blaspheme God. They have no regard for God, no respect for God, no fear of God, because the church shows no fear of God. Spurgeon says this in his 19th century English eloquence. We are sent into this world to testify against evils. But if we dabble in them ourselves, where is our testimony? If we ourselves be found faulty, we are false witnesses. We are not sent of God. Our testimony is of none effect. I do not hesitate to say there are tens of thousands of professing Christians whose testimony before the world is rather injurious than beneficial. The world looks at them and says, well, I see you can be a Christian and yet remain a rogue. Many Christians forget that they are bearing a testimony. They do not think that anybody notices them. A, but they do. There are no people so much watched as Christians. The world reads us up from the first letter of our lives to the end, and if they could find a flaw, and God forgive us, they may find very many. They are sure to magnify the flaw as much as ever they can. Let us therefore be very watchful that we live close to Christ, that we walk in his commandments always, and that the world may see that the Lord hath put a difference. It was sad because in Spurgeon's day, the church was already capitulating. Doctrinally and ethically, the Baptist churches of England were being lost, caving into the higher criticism of liberalism of that day, so much so that it sickened him to the point of death. Many scholars and biographers of Spurgeon believe that it was the falling away of the church in the 19th century that led to his death. <laughs> Where are we 100 years later? 
And this is why our corporate witness is important. It's not only that the unbelieving word hears the gospel, which is good, but it must see the consistency and the holiness in which we live. And so much so that the preaching will either be validated or invalidated by our corporate witness. So let's look at the instructions. Number one, walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom. Perhaps this is the greatest challenge we can hear, and that is because so many of us lack wisdom. Paul is saying to walk in wisdom literally means to live your life in a way that you're applying wisdom to how you conduct yourself. Wisdom is something that we desperately need. In the beginning of wisdom, the scripture teaches the fear of God. When you fear God, you will carry yourself in a wise manner. But I think more practically, remember the context here is how we conduct ourselves among outsiders. That is precisely what Paul is referring to. And the Lord Jesus gave us instructions himself on how to conduct ourselves. When he sends out the 70 disciples in Matthew 10, he says this, verse 16 through 18, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my name's sake, to bear witness before them and before the Gentiles. So in that midst of telling, sending them out, warning them of the dangers to come, he's saying, be wise as serpent and so harmless as doves. There's the only time in the Bible where it tells us to be like a serpent. It tells us in Genesis 1 that that the serpent was the most crafty and clever of all the animals that God put in the garden. They slither and they're sneaky. You don't see the snake when it comes. There's a, there's a sort of a stealth of the snake. And that's why the imagery is used to reflect Satan. We are called to be wise as serpents as well. The reminder is that Jesus sends us out as sheep amongst wolves. Again, more imagery there. And so if you're sheep amongst wolves, you do not look for the wolf. You do not provoke the wolf. You try to get around the wolf. And what I find that so many times that Christians do is they jump right into the mouth of the wolf because there's a lack of wisdom. And they cry, the wolf got me. Well, you ran right into his mouth. There are two responses here, two extremes I see within Christianity that I think are equally as dangerous. They are the responses that we have to secular society. Now, we're seeing society change rapidly, becoming more secular, more ungodly, more wicked, and it's a very, it's a very disturbing thing when we see what's going on in the world today in many different aspects. And so the response could be twofold. And by the way, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing that's happening today that didn't happen before. But how does the church respond? Well, there's two responses. Number one, there are those who see the changes and they say, we need to adapt and capitulate to the cultural trends of modern society. If we don't do it, the church will die. This goes back to, we see in the modern movement in the late 19th, early 20th century, many mainstream Protestant churches adapted this viewpoint, as I said, as we saw the higher criticism take place in universities, uh, 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 the liberal movement, uh, many evangelicals began to adopt 
uh, macroevolution, and, and they began to adopt Darwinianism, and they said, well, we got to embrace the sciences, because if we don't, we're going to not be discredited by those who, who are smart and intelligent, and they, little by little, they kept withering away at the Bible, abandoning scriptural teaching, saying, well, the Bible's not really God's word, it's just a, a book of poetry, and, and, and it's art, and we have to interpret art as it applies to us, what do you see in the art, and it, and it opened up this whole mess, this whole can of worms. It, the focus became more on socialism, uh, social work and, and, and social justice than on God's word. If you ever heard the expression, preach the gospel often and if necessary, use words, that comes right out of that movement because the idea was you should not use words, you should not preach, just do good deeds for people and that's good enough. Just show the love of Jesus. Don't say nothing. Don't offend people. Don't point. There's no such thing as truth in it. It led to a whole downside of the church. Downgrade, I should say. It's precisely what the term was used to describe the church in England during Spurgeon's day. Many churches follow that path and all of them are dead. Gone. Goodbye. From here, all over the country, all over the world, they are so far gone, so apostate. They're so lost. There's not even a vestige of truth left in these churches. They're just mausoleums. Men like Jay Gresham Manchin, who was uh, part of the Presbyterian Church of America at the time, he, re- he withstood and was resilient, and he led a movement, um, which today is known as the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And, um, you know, they withstood, and many others of the fundamentalist movement um, withstood the temptation to capitulate, to, to cave in. And they said, listen, if there's anything that's going to make our witness strong to an unbelieving world, it's not caving into the demands of the world, but it's staying committed to biblical truth. That maintains our corporate witness. Being like the world doesn't attract people to Jesus. It's the difference. It's the distinction. There should be something alien. If I'm an unbeliever and I come to church, I want to see something different. I want something better than what the world is offering not more of the same. And that's precisely what so many get wrong. They just cave into whatever the trends are, whatever's popular, whatever's the new movement, so that they could appeal to others and gain the approval of men. That's one extreme. The other extreme is that some churches feel that their call, or some pastors believe that their call is to become culture warriors and fight everything that's going on in the culture and get involved in the culture war on every aspect. And, and, and so what happens is you get sucked more into a political battle than you do into a gospel battle. And so everything becomes is, well, if we're going to win this battle, we have to get behind politicians who are going to back up what we want and we're going to get them in power and they're going to lead us and we're going to Christianize the nation and that's going to solve all our problems. Well, that's been attempted throughout the church age many times and it never worked. And that's because men are desperately wicked and sinful and even Christians, when they get in power, become corrupt and wicked. You see, we don't change the world by changing the politics. We change the world by changing men's hearts. When men and women come to faith in Christ and they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, their, their lives are changed, their viewpoints are changed, they're going to vote differently and they're going to demand higher morals and ethics from their leaders. But when men are debased, they will choose debased leaders. Several years ago in 2013, I went to Washington, D.C. on a trip with Southern Baptist Seminary. It was one of my courses. It was an ethics course that we took. And we got to meet 
different leaders in Congress and the Senate. We met. Um, we also met uh, several um, journalists from Politico and uh, uh, now Axios and different organizations. It was a very informative trip. I went on. It was very. Uh, it was very helpful to me. And we met one senator. You may be familiar with him. His name is Rand Paul, and he spoke to a group of us. And people were asking him different questions about politics and this. And he said something which I thought was so important. He says, listen, don't look to me, don't look to the Senate to change society. Don't look to government to change society. We are powerless to change society. He says, you men here, he's talking to a group of men trained to be pastors, you have the ability to change society more than we do. Because you guys preach God's word, we don't. And I thought that was powerful coming from a senator. I never heard a senator or anyone in government speak that way, but it was personable and he was alone with a group of men. He could talk that way. It comes from the pulpits of America. When the pulpits of America are preaching truth, you're going to see a difference in society. A recent survey went out and that less than 50%, according to Barnard Research, less than 50% of confessing evangelicals in the United States of America believe that Jesus Christ was sinless. What does that tell you? There's something direly wrong when pastors are failing to preach or teach in such a way that members of their churches cannot confirm that Christ was sinless. If Christ had sinned, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have been a satisfactory mediator. He wouldn't have risen from the dead. And we would all be dead in our sins and transgressions and doomed to hell. And we're all a bunch of idiots if we're Christians. How could you even call yourself a Christian and say you do not believe in the sinlessness of Christ? I think for so many Christians, we need to walk in wisdom in the sense that we do not let politics dictate our path and how we view how we're going to be the salt of society, but we realize it's the church that must be at the forefront. That's the wisdom we need to apply. Another aspect of walking in wisdom is that you do not throw yourself into the mouth of the wolves, as I said. But, uh, let me give you an example. If you find out in June they're having a pride parade in, in, in White Plains like they normally do, and they'll probably have one in Mount Vernon too, and Yonkers and wherever. When there's a pride parade, that doesn't mean you should go there and start yelling at the top of your lungs, you're all going to hell! I know it's Christians who do that, right? Or they get up and they start quoting every verse at the top of their lungs at the pride parade that speak about homosexuality. That, there's no wisdom in that. You are not going to win one single person to Christ. You're probably going to get a beating before you get anything. That's foolishness. And then if the cops come and arrest you and say, oh, I'm getting persecuted, you're not being persecuted, you're acting like a fool. No more foolish than me going into a bar full of drunkards and telling them they need to stop drinking. They're going to pick me up by the collar and give me a swift kick in the rear end and push me out of the bar. There's a time and a place where we speak the truth of God. And you need to know the difference. And I think too many times as Christians, we, you know, we, we, we want to provoke. We want to instigate. We want to you know, confront people and, and get into conflict. That's not what Christ calls us to do. I have no sympathy when I see people who are persecuted that act like fools. 
Jesus told us in Matthew 7, 6, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. In other words, there's a time to speak up and a time to shut up. Sam Storms says it this way, wisdom requires that we be discerning as to when to speak and to whom to speak. Sometimes we need to be bold and forthright, while on other occasions, because of the calloused and hostile postures of an audience, we need to keep our mouths shut. Walk in wisdom. That's the first point. Second point, make the most of your time. Make the most of your time, Paul says. Now, this is the same terminology used in Ephesians 5, 14 through 15 when Paul says, redeem the time for the days are evil. The word, the, the phrase there is literally to redeem, to buy back the time. Now, that's kind of like an oxymoron because once time is spent, you can't get it back, right? Time is a precious commodity. It's the most precious commodity that we all have because as the clock is ticking, we're getting close to the day of our death you cannot recover the days lost. One commentator who knows the Greek language really well says if, to interpret this phrase properly in English, the best phrase that we could use to describe this phrase is seize the moment, seize the time. In other words, grab the opportunity that is before you and jump on it. Seize the opportunity, seize the window, seize the moment. Now, in life, there are going to be windows of opportunity that open in your life. And if you've lived long enough, you'll learn something. When a window of opportunity opens, it doesn't stay open long. Any of you who've lived here long enough, I'll repeat it, will know. And young people, listen to me. When windows of opportunity open, they close eventually. And they do not reopen usually. And that could be opportunities for anything. It could be an opportunity with a career. It could be an opportunity with a potential spouse. It could be an opportunity for ministry. It could be an opportunity maybe to go in the mission field. Opportunities, good opportunities rarely come. And when they come, you need to seize the moment. The more you vacillate and think about it, that moment will slip you by and it's gone and you'll never get it back. I've learned that the hard way in life. And the older I get, I seize the moments. I take advantage of them. But more importantly, we need to seize the moments when God opens a door for ministry. When God opens the door for you to minister the gospel, you take it. I'll give you an example. It was back in 2001. My grandfather, John, died. And I wanted to talk to him about Christ. I wanted to talk to him about the gospel. But I didn't. I said, well, I'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow he died. My grandfather, Augie, shortly later, in 2002, fell and hit his head, and he was sick in the hospital. And I had, I had the same opportunity. I knew his time was short. Well, I made sure every time I went to the hospital, we talked, we fellowshiped, but I spoke to him about the Lord Jesus Christ every time I could. I made sure I did not leave that hospital without letting him know the eternal truths of the gospel. And since then, I've been, I've had that same approach with everything in life, with everyone I meet. When God opens an opportunity, when God opens the door, and you have access. This week, I attended, I spoke at the funeral of, of Richie's cousin, Annette. 
What an opportunity. A room full of unbelievers, people that are hardened. Their relative just died. As any preacher of the gospel knows, there's no greater opportunity to talk about Jesus. Everyone's thinking about death. They're thinking of the reality that we'll all be there one day. You seize the moment. I don't know about the people in your life, what opportunities you have, but if God opens a door, seize it. Seize the opportunity with your children. One day they'll grow old and you won't see them anymore. It'll be too late. Seize the opportunity. If God offers you an opportunity to preach or teach, don't think about it. Seize it. If God opens a door for you to do missionary work, seize it. If you have a lost friend or loved one and they're asking you questions about God, they're saying, pray for me. Oh my, the door's wide open. Go in, seize the moment. Don't sit there, Lord, you want me to talk? No, don't. Of course God wants you to talk to them. Just do it. I find that we vacillate so much, we think so much, we pray so much sometimes that we become paralyzed and we do nothing. Seize the opportunity. Seize the moment. Third, be gracious and be salty in your speech. Be gracious and be salty. Now, this is a little interesting because I... I find that in our speech, the way we're dealing with people, there's sort of a balance. So let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt that you may know how to answer each person. Gracious and saltiness almost could seem like opposites at some times. But if we understand the proper application of being a preserving agent or adding flavor, we see that our graciousness will make our speech more attractive. And so when sharing the gospel with unbelievers, no doubt you're going to have disagreements. And no doubt you're going to be passionate in what you believe is true. And no doubt the person you're talking to is going to be very passionate and committed what they believe. And you're going to butt heads. And the temptation is to win an argument. The temptation is this is a battle for truth and I got to contend for the truth at this moment and I have to Show this person that they're wrong, and I'll do everything I can to do so. And we get heated, we get in the flesh, and then we do way more damage than we do good. With this in mind, we have to remember something. We must be more interested in winning souls than winning arguments. You can compel people to Christ, but you cannot convince people to come to Christ. The convincing work, the convicting work is the operation of the Holy Spirit of God. We are messengers. It is the Holy Spirit that moves upon a person's heart and brings them to saving faith. And it's with that, trusting in the sovereign grace of God, evangelism becomes a lot easier. I'm not a salesperson out there trying to meet my quota. I'm just being a messenger. I'm, I'm sharing. I'm, you know, I think R.C. Sproul described how we share the gospel best, which is both gracious and salty. It's one beggar telling another beggar where he can get a piece of bread. That's what we are. We're beggars telling other beggars where you can get a loaf of bread, where you can find rest for your soul, where you can find food for your, your, your spiritual life. There's an old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, right? But guess what you could do? You could give him salt. It'll make him want to drink the water. 
And we need to speak in such a way and be compelling in such a way that people are attracted to and they want to hear what we have to say. There needs to be charm to what we say. And that's the word John MacArthur uses, that word charming, to describe saltiness there. Charismatic, whatever word you want to use. How can we do this? Well, it's by understanding what we're dealing with. First of all, knowing that when you're talking to outsiders, what does the scripture say? You're dealing with prisoners of Satan. 2 Timothy 2, 23 through 26 instructs us on how to deal with these situations. Listen to this. Listen to this. This is so important. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, for you know that they breed quarrels. Isn't that so true? And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, and that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. When you're speaking to outsiders, you're talking to people who are prisoners of Satan. They've been taken captive on them. They're blind. They don't see it. They don't get it. The more agitated you get, the more agitated they're going to get. But when you approach people with gentleness and kindness, even when they're opposing you, notice, correct your opponents. The presumption is here people will oppose you. Some may even be hostile. But be patient. Endure the evil. Be kind. Do not quarrel. Be gentle. And here's the key. Perhaps God may grant them repentance. Trusting that it is the Holy Spirit's job to open their eyes, to open their hearts, that God may grant them a repentant heart to turn from their sin and turn to Christ. Secondly, be motivated more by love than anger. We may be very tempted to be angry with unbelievers because of their overt hostility. I I see things going on in society today that make my blood boil. The things that we see should make our blood boil. There, there are things that I see, whether it's overt violence or this just obnoxious pushing of the LGBT moral system on people, on little kids. <coughs> it makes my blood boil. It's disgusting. But do I reflect? How do I reflect that? You have to realize that if it weren't for the grace of God, we'd all be there too. We have to have compassion. I want you to think of it this way. If you have a relative who's dying of cancer and you love them dearly and the doctor says, we have the treatment that your cancer's not that bad and if you take the treatment, you'll be cured and you'll go into remission. Relative says, no, I don't want nothing. I don't believe in medicine. What would you, as a loving family member, do? Would you get into an all-out brawl, an argument, fighting with them and telling them how stupid they are? What do you think that would accomplish? They would harden their hearts more. They would double down in their conviction not to use any medical treatment. You would not convince them of any way. You would just make them even harder in their conviction. But if you love that person, you are going to speak in the most 
charismatic way, the most compelling way, you are going to be a salesman or saleswoman and you're going to do everything you can to persuade that loved one to take the treatment and to extend their years. Because love is the motivating factor. You're not here to win a battle. You're here to win a heart. And until we have a love for the lost, we will never be able to properly communicate to them the important truths of the gospel. Jesus is the ultimate remedy and cure for our incurable disease and cancer of sin. Man is dying. The reason why society is decaying and it's so corrupt is because of sin. Jesus is the remedy. He is the cure. We have the cure in our hands, but how we present it is going to make the difference. Now, ultimately, God has his elect, right? God knows who's saved and who's not going to be saved. Not everybody's going to be saved. We have to understand that. But that doesn't mean we, we act obnoxious. Oh, God is sovereign. Maybe the haughtiness of knowing the sovereignty of God compels us to be more obnoxious. No, if anything, it means to be more humble. To see the grace of God and not hinder the grace of God by putting our personality before the grace of God. John MacArthur says speaking with, speaking salty means having speech that is charming and effective. We want people to savor the goodness of God so they may come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Now there's a fine balance between engaging with believers in a charming way and yet not compromising. And it's a delicate balance because there are times that we're going to need to be bold. There are times where we're going to need to be very affirmative. And there are times where we're going to need to speak in a very direct fashion and not be capitulating or to bend to the whims of society. And no matter how winsome you are, society is going to reject you no matter what. So we could be bold, we could be courageous, we could speak to the matters as they exist. We do not make it the focus of our ministry. It doesn't define our ministry. The gospel of Christ defines our ministry. But when we see the issues as we are, we call them out as we are. We speak in a way that that is bold and affirmative, but we realize that no matter what you do, the world is still going to hate you. No matter how nice you present it, the world is still going to hate you. We're not trying to win people's approval. We're trying to win their souls. Finally, know how to answer each person. At the end of the day, we're not only seeking to win people, but we need to be prepared to give an answer. And notice, there's two things. They said, we need to know how to give an answer. The answer is, people are going to ask you questions. They're going to ask you why you believe what you believe and why did you change your life and why do you go to church every Sunday and why do you uh, uh, not drink and why are you uh, faithful to your spouse and And why do you not curse? And why do you not do all the things that we do? Well, you need to have an answer ready for them. Do you know how to answer people that ask you why you believe what you believe? Most people see religion as just, well, this is what I am. That's all. What I was born into? Don't ask me no questions. I can't give you no answers. It is what it is. Or you ask people, well, I just believe it because it's in the Bible. You need to be able to accurately explain and defend what you believe. If you do not understand your faith, then what do you believe? That, then what do you believe in? 
If you don't know, if you can't tell someone else what you believe in, then what do you believe in? Seriously. The gospel is, is and, and, and the Bible pres- contains truths, a set of tr- absolute truths that are either true or they're false. They're either real or they're not. And to be able to defend them and to, to, to be able to argue and present cogent reasoning to people as to why I believe what I believe makes all the difference in the world. Peter said the same thing in 1 Peter 3, 15 through 17, in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We must be ready to always make a defense for the reason of our hope, but do it with gentleness and respect. People are going to slander you. They're going to make fun of you. Let them do so. We must remain above reproach. Finally, knowing each person. Every individual is a different way you're going to talk to. As a pastor, I need to know my audience. If I get preach at a different church, I got to gauge the audience. And you're going to speak to different audiences in different manners. That's a good preacher. That's a good... That's someone who has what? Wisdom. Paul had this wisdom. When he was a bunch of Jews, what did he do? He preached the gospel, went back to the Old Testament, and right through the history of the Old Testament showed how Jesus was the Messiah. Well, that's how you preach to a Jewish audience. When chapter Acts 17, when he's in Athens, and he walks in Athens and sees all the statues to the foreign gods, what does he do? Does he open up the Old Testament and say, let me tell you about Abraham. Who's Abraham. No, he walks into Athens and says, I see all these statues. You're, you're very religious people. He says, and I see one statue there to the unknown God. Well, what you do not know, let me make him known to you. And boom, he goes right into preaching Christ. You have to be versatile. You have to know who you're talking to. You're going to present the gospel different to, to someone who's a, who's a very moral person who may be a medical doctor and has a PhD than you do to someone in the streets. The message is the same, but how you present it is going gonna, is gonna to vary depending on who the audience is. Pastor Paul was in India and he, he saw the rampant Hinduism and the idolatry. He had to speak and craft sermons that revolved around pointing out that there's one true God and that these idols don't exist. You, you know your audience, you know your context, and you deliver the message in a way that is palatable to that audience that they're going to understand you. And that is what it is to be ready to give an answer. All right, let me conclude. This church, grace and truth in all churches have a gospel commission. We, we have a responsibility, a personal responsibility and a corporate responsibility to be a witness to the outside world, to the unbelieving world. We need to be salty. Are we salty? Or are we losing our flavor? Are we losing our saltiness? When people come to church, what do they see? Do they see a church of vibrant believers who are really excited about their faith, who, are, who demonstrate a love for God and a love for others? Do they see a difference, a holiness, a purity, a zeal and passion for God? Or they come and just see a bunch of old, crusty religious people 
who are salty in the wrong way? Do they see a difference in the way we communicate, in the way that we deal with people? It's an interesting thing because I have engaged with unbelievers on different topics and they said to me, you know what? You present it a lot different than I've heard it from other people. That's the kind of thing you want to hear. You want to distinguish from all the garbage that's out there, all the folly that's out there. Our corporate witness is at stake. Let me tell you, these days, and I started with a quote from Spurgeon, the downgrade was taking place in England, nothing was stopping it. It sickened him to the point of death. That downgrade is still here today. It's just taken a different form. And I believe that in the United States of America, one of the biggest reasons why we're seeing so much social collapse is not because of the outsiders. The wicked will continue to be wicked. It's because of the churches that profess Jesus Christ have by and large become apostate. We've lost our corporate witness when we do all the same things the world does, the world sees no difference. And when there's no difference, there'll be no impact. We're to be the preserving agent of the world. When the church loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing to be cast into the dung pile. The good thing is this. For those of us who are in Christ, the good news is you've come to faith in Christ. Our eternal salvation is secure. You're not going to lose your salvation but I could tell you this much. There are temporal judgments in this world. And churches do close up. Churches do shut their doors. Churches do die. Every church has a birthday. And every church has a death day. And sooner or later, when the church loses its saltiness, it dies. Let's pray that grace and truth would have a long life. A salty life. And that its years would continue and its death would be far off as we pursue being salty people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this time that we have to hear your word. We pray that these words would not return void, but that you would speak to us, minister to us, and guide us in these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.